Well, if you could open your Bibles, please, to Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 14, and the title of today's message is Go and Don't Grumble. Go and Don't Grumble from Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. Well, if you were with us for this past few weeks, we've been going through a sermon series on our vision statement as a church. That is, in Christ, we connect, grow, and go. And last week, Alpino, our other pastor, spoke about the go piece, how you and I are called to go, to go and serve, to go and proclaim the gospels, the gospel, to go and proclaim his excellencies. And we've used the metaphor to help us get our mind around what it means to go. We've used the metaphor of air flight and travel. And we liken going, if you recall, to deplaning or deboarding an airplane. The go piece of our commission is to disembark at our destination. Well, I know many of you have traveled here. You've traveled to foreign countries or at least other regions of the U.S., And well, you can probably attest that, well, getting to your destination and experiencing the newness of it all at times can be a little discombobulating. I love that word. I had to throw it in there. Discombobulating. I mean, all the the different people, at times the different smells, the different sights, even the foreign language or perhaps just the accents can throw you off a little bit. Traveling, disembarking to a new destination, at times can be a little nerve-wracking. But you know what else? Traveling to different places and intermingling with the culture and the people can also be exhilarating. It can be exotic. Everything at first seems different, seems new, novel, fresh. Kind of like when you were first dating your spouse, who are you now married to. Perhaps like it was when you first came to Palm Vista that first Sunday. It was all new and different. Or when you started that new job. But then something can happen. The newness wears off. The honeymoon fades. What was once so novel becomes irritating. What was once just different is now wrong expectations go unmet. And this can be our experience at our destination, but it could also be our experience with the people we are deplaning or deboarding with on this mission. You start seeing their warts and their weaknesses up close and personal like never before. And so the grumbling begins, the complaining, the quarreling, And the discontent you feel of that malcontent that you vow you're going to keep to yourself begins to ooze out and infect your speech and that of others as well. Church, it can happen to each and every one of us on this mission. That's why I believe the Apostle Paul, inspired by God, wrote these words to the church at Philippi in Philippians 2. Our text today. Let us read, starting with verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, 
that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. The church on this week of Thanksgiving, how appropriate to talk about our speech and our very words. Why? That we might be distinct. That we as a people might be different from the world around us. Not only in what we say, but also in what we don't say. That we might stand out. We live in a world of complaining, don't we? Listen to social media, talk radio, blogs, neighbors, news, coworker chat. There's a lot of complaining going on. Oh, church, maybe, may we be the ones proclaiming God's goodness and grace and all that we do and all that we say and all that we don't say as well. So my main point this morning is simply this up on the screen. Don't grumble. Don't give in. Stand out. In a world in which we live, sometimes, sometimes shutting up is standing out. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you for the gift of your word. We believe it is living. It is active. It is sharper than a double-edged sword. And Lord, we ask that your word would do its work this morning. So Spirit, employ the sword of the Spirit, the word this morning. Lord, to convict us where need be, but also to comfort us as well. Do not leave us merely in our con- state of conviction alone, but may it lead us to a proper response, repentance, and appropriation of your grace, that we might be the people that you called us to be, that we might stand out as lights in this darkened world, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to set the context for today's passage. We're dropping into a passage in Philippians 2, but there's a context to this. And to set that context, I want to go back to verse 12. And to make it abundantly clear, the Apostle Paul, human author here, is writing to the church at Philippi. He's writing to those who are already saved. And so we pick up in verse 12, two verses prior, in chapter 2. We read these words. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Catch those words, work out your own salvation. What does that mean? Well, Paul certainly can't mean that we're to earn our salvation by our good works. No, he's speaking, remember, to those who've already been saved. The same way that we are saved, not by our own personal works, by the work of Jesus Christ, his life, his death on our behalf for all who believe. See, Paul is already talking to those who have been saved. They have been connected to God and to one another. 
And they are learning now to grow as a community of believers, as the church. Paul is essentially saying, my beloved friends, as you grow, as you go, demonstrate to the listening world that your salvation is real. Let it be known in the community. Allow those around you to hear what salvation sounds like. How? Through your words, through what you say, and particularly what you don't say. Thus, verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. You might have a different translation, without questioning or quarreling. Church, your words matter. My words matter. Chatter matters. What you say in private and what you say to one another. Part of working out our salvation as individuals and as a people of God it involves not only doing good works, but also involves good and proper speech, learning to refrain from grumbling and disputing. It's a mark of a true Christian. It's a mark of the true Christian community. And today we're going to look at three verses, just one sentence, and one loaded imperative or command. We've already read it. What is it? Point one, found in verse 14. Don't grumble. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. I mean, just pause and think about it. That one statement, it's stunningly simple and direct. But what's even more stumbling, excuse me, more stunning, is that Apostle Paul is talking to Christians. It's sad, but it's true. Grumbling is so common. It's like sneezing at times. Just do it. What do you think about it? It can become a normal, a very regular part of our lives that it needs to be said. Don't grumble. Don't give in. Well, what is grumbling anyway? What well, a quote one commentator, this word translated grumbling in this context refers to this, quote, whispering complaints, talking in secret against someone and making negative comments about others behind their backs. Ouch. What is disputing? In this context, it means quarreling and debating in ways that are divisive and meant to raise doubts. See, the type of disputing or questioning or quarreling that I believe the Apostle Paul is speaking about here isn't an honest attempt to discover the truth or to embrace the truth, but to raise doubts about it, to be the contrarian in order to agitate, to divide, to anger. And this type of grumbling and disputing, you know what? It loves companions. In fact, it needs them. Grumbling loves listeners. Grumbling loves friends. Grumbling loves sympathizers. And grumbling will seek them out and find them. But here's the question. Will it be found in the church? Will it be found in this church? That's the issue that Paul is raising in this text. As humans, we have mastered grumbling and disputing, have we not? As Christians, we've been tempted to sanctify grumbling 
and disputing, to make them acceptable. We call disputing or quarreling in the church sometimes, you know, just keeping it real, being authentic, passion. We can call grumbling, just sharing. We can even call grumbling, I pray request. All the while, you and I know we're complaining in our hearts and we're complaining to others. See, we're not really seeking counsel, prayer, or truth. That's okay to go to a friend and seek counsel about an issue that you're struggling with. Okay, that's fine. No, but when we're grumbling, we're making judgments and we're ascribing motives. We're venting. Love this quote from David Pallison. Quote, grumbling doesn't want to hear the truth. Because grumbling doesn't want to be comforted. Grumbling wants what it wants. Let me read that again. Grumbling doesn't want to hear the truth. Because grumbling doesn't want to be comforted. Grumbling wants what it wants. And we may call it whatever we want. But God calls it sin. Whether we're whispering, shouting, or disputing our complaints. You've noticed verse 14, there's no loopholes here, are there? No excuses. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. To disobey this command is sin, and it is serious. You see, Paul in this text is making a subtle or not so subtle point. He's actually marshalling, I believe, the example of the Israelites in the Old Testament who grumbled against Moses in the desert. He does that by using the very verbiage, grumbling and disputing, as well as the phrase in verse 15, you see that? Crooked and twisted generation. I believe those are very purposeful. These are the phrases and words that are used to describe the generation of grumbling and complaining Israelites in the Old Testament. The very generation that was delivered from the bondage and slavery of Egypt and brought miraculously, victoriously through the waters of the Red Sea. I think you know their story. And their example, it's sobering. And sadly, too often relatable as well. You see, if you know the story, no sooner had the Israelites got off the plane, no sooner had they arrived at Sinai International Airport from Egypt, when they start complaining. They've barely unpacked their bags And we find them complaining about the diet and about the menu in this new land that God had brought them to. But they thought their complaint was against Moses and their leaders. Oh, but Moses quickly corrects them. He says, your complaint, friends, is with God. It's with God. So we read in verse Exodus 16, verse 8, which I believe we have for you, the following. And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Church, our grumbling is ultimately directed against God himself. There will always be presenting problems and people who we think justify our grumbling and complaining. 
But if God is our sovereign shepherd, if he is the one who has brought us to this place, united us with these people and brought us into this culture, make no mistake about it. Your complaint is ultimately against the God Almighty. But let's peel it back a little further. To say our grumbling is against God actually reveals something even deeper. It reveals a heart of unbelief. In the case of the Israelites, they doubted God's provision. They doubted God's character. They even doubted God's presence. I want to give you a few scriptures to see it for yourself. I believe Paul wrote this here in Philippians as well. He says elsewhere in scripture, I believe it's 1 Corinthians 10, that the Israelites are to be an example to us, a warning to us. So let's learn from them. Psalm 78, verse 19 and 20, speaking of the Israelites in the wilderness, we read, they spoke against God, saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so the water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? Notice those words. They spoke against God. And their questions were really voice complaints. Doubts about God's ability to provide and care for his people. Church, beware. Questioning God usually leads to believing lies about God and making flat-out accusations against God, doubting his very character, not only his ability, but his very character, his willingness and desire to help, doubting his very goodness. One more, a couple more scriptures here. Exodus 16, verse 3, we read, oh, this is amazing. And the people of Israel said to them, Oh, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Whoa, 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 whoa. We've got to pause there. Did you catch that? Meat pots and bread to the full? Church, the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. What I find most amazing about their complaints is this. You would have thought by listening to them in Exodus 16, when they're back in Egypt, they were living in Club Med Egypt. Five-star dining, right? Eating filet mignons every night. $10 cocktails on the hour. That's what you would think reading this text. See, grumbling loves revisionist history. Grumblers are experts in rewriting history and recasting themselves as mere victims. But it gets worse, as we read in this text. The people of God actually accuse God of the intent to murder. Not only is God not providing for them as they saw fit, they are convinced that God delivered them out of Egypt. Why? For the purpose of killing them. See, friends, grumbling... It's not just unbelief. It's slander against God Almighty. And lastly and thirdly, this leads to doubting God's very presence. His very presence in our lives. I want to read from you Exodus 17, verse 7. And he called the name of the place Massah, 
which means, by the way, testing. Interesting. And Meribah, by the way, which means quarreling. Because of the quarreling of the people of Israel. And because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Not only do we find the Israelites doubting God's provision, doubting God's character. What are they doing now? They're doubting God's very presence. They're wondering if God is even present. They are accusing God of being AWOL, absent without leave. The Israelites, God's treasure possession, his people are acting like orphans. Do you see the audacity and accusations in their grumbling? At its heart, grumbling is arrogant unbelief. Grumbling is unbelief with an attitude. Unbelief with an attitude. And when we grumble and dispute, we're testing God. As you just read, to quote one commentator, Alec Mayer, testing God involves putting him on probation, withholding trust, pending evidence. For the Israelites, it meant doubting whether he who had proved sufficient in the past was still sufficient now that things had taken a different turn. Has life taken a different turn for you? A different turn, maybe in your relationships. Maybe it's certain expectations that you had of yourself or you had of others. And those expectations have gone woefully unmet, even dashed before your eyes. Are you looking to lay blame? Is God on probation in your mind this morning? Does God have something that he still needs to prove to you? More than he's already proved in killing his son on the cross for you, for your sin and rebellion, for delivering you from slavery and making you his child, giving you the freedom and inheritance of his own son. See, if you believe God still has something to prove to you this morning, something that he owes you, you are testing God. Testing, quarreling, grumbling. It's the way of the world. But it's not the way of true believers of the church. We know better. And it's our absence of grumbling and disputing. It's our gratitude that shows the world that we do know better. Don't grumble. Don't give in. Why? That leads to our second point. That we might stand out that we might be a distinct people. Verse 15, let me read it again. That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Literally, we're to have no blame, no fault, no flaw. When it comes to complaining or grumbling, We're to be like Pam cooking spray, okay? Nothing sticks. No accusations stick. We are to be strikingly different than the complaining world around us. Notice, we're to shine as lights in the world, like stars against the black of night. The darker the night, the more negative, 
the speech and outlook of those around us, the brighter we will shine in our speech. Last week, our, our youth and some of our parents went camping. And one of my favorite parts of camping is looking at the sky on a clear night. And God gave us a clear night that Friday evening. Some even saw shooting stars in the middle of the night, looking up through their tents. There was no rain fly, clear skies. And seeing the stars radiate. Stars that are light years away, just capturing our gaze and attention. No big city lights, no light pollution. The darkness of the light of the night around us by which we could see the bright and shining stars. They did. They captured my gaze and us that evening. You see, it's our speech as Christians. It's our gratitude as Christians which ought to capture the attention of the world around us. But also hear this. Stars in Paul's day were not just luminaries to be looked at. Oh, they were to be gazed at. They were lights to be followed. You understand in Paul's day, there were no GPS devices, okay? People navigated the seas by the stars. I remember reading about the South Pacific Islanders, how they got to the island, islands of Hawaii, traveling literally thousands of miles in a glorified dugout canoe on the open Pacific Ocean. And they could navigate from the South Pacific to the small islands of Hawaii in the Northern Hemisphere. How? By learning to navigate by the stars. The stars were their GPS. You see, the glory of the stars is not just the light they bring, but the guidance they give especially in a crooked and a wayward generation. Do do you see it? It's our speech. It's how we relate to one another and the world. Especially when we're in the heat of the moment. When we're encountering a trial in the midst of suffering and setbacks. It's how we relate. It's how we speak at those times. It serves as a compass to a lost generation. It's our speech which points to the North Star, who is Jesus, in a world that has largely abandoned any notion of absolute truth. You know, whenever I watch a big event, particularly the Super Bowl, I don't know why, it sounds silly, the Super Bowl, but I'm always interested in listening to the post-game interviews. But what I'm most interested in is this. Listening to the interviews of the coach and the stars of the losing locker room. Now, we all hear the interviews of those who are victorious. Is it not relatively easy to praise God in victory? What I often want to hear is what the losers, those in the losing locker room, have to say. And so often I've put myself there. I've imagined, Lord, what would I do if I was in the Super Bowl and I lost? What would I say? What would I say? Would I complain? Would I grumble? Would I complain about the officiating in the game? Or at that moment, in the silence of a sober, quiet locker room, would I thank God for the opportunity to compete? Would I acknowledge, yes, my disappointment in not winning 
the game. But would I have that confident smile on my face as I say, I thank God there's something more important in life than football or the Super Bowl. It's Jesus and bringing him glory. Would I say it? Church, we have such an opportunity because God often puts us in that losing locker room, so to speak. And every setback, every conflict, every hardship, we can testify to our faith in Christ. And the world has a pretty large microphone. You know what? The world's listening to us. Uh, They may not be listening to this sermon online. Okay, I get that. But you know what? They're listening to you. And they're listening to our lives and what we say. But they're especially listening when suffering hits. When relational conflicts arise. When scandals erupt. When tragedy occurs. When terrorists strike. Or hot button issues like same-sex marriage arise. Oh, they're listening. What comes out of our mouth? And onto Facebook. Is it grumbling? Is it quarreling? Or is it a quiet confidence in God, in his word, and his ways? See, the church at Philippi, to which Paul was writing, was a small congregation. They were small. A small community of believers. But there was a hope. There was an expectation on the part of the Apostle Paul. It was that this little church in Philippi, that their heavenly light would shine far beyond their city and illuminate the way home for a crooked and perverse generation. I find that encouraging. We here at Palm Vista can be that heavenly light that shines in South Florida and beyond. You see, being a witness of Christ does not always mean physically going. Being a witness of Christ sometimes means simply not grumbling right where you're at, where God in his sovereignty has placed you. In this church, amidst this people, in the culture in which we live, in the marketplace where we work or in the home, whether you're an activist or an invalid, whether you're free or even imprisoned. How can that be? That leads to our final point. It's the how. How do we live in this world without complaining or grumbling or disputing? How can we be those lights which God's intended for us to be, not only individually, but as a church? It's simply found in verse 16, as we hold on to the gospel and don't let go. Verse 16, let me read it again. Holding fast to the word of life, So that in the day of Christ, I, it's Paul speaking, may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. See that phrase, the word, or in this text, the word of life? It's often a synonym for Paul, for the gospel. He's talking about holding on to the gospel, the goodness of Jesus together in community. 
not letting the good news of Jesus out of our sights, not forgetting what God has promised to do in Christ, what he's done in Christ, in his life, in his death, and in his promise for us of eternal life. See, this is exactly what Paul was doing when he wrote this letter to the church of Philippi. He was holding fast and firmly to Jesus. Paul's desire was that their salvation would be worked out in speech. Why? So Paul knew that his labor was not in vain, that the gospel would be shown to be the power of God to save and also to sanctify even our very tongues. Why was that so important to Paul? Because he was in prison. Paul had given his life. He had pinned all his hopes on the gospel. He had given up everything to live for Christ. And he knew well the crooked and perverse generation in which he references. He knew their names. He saw their faces every day as he lay in prison under house arrest. And yet, Paul did not complain. He did not test the Lord. He did not quarrel. You see, when Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, he of all people seemed to have a pretty good reason and right to complain. He was the apostle called by God. He was a man on fire with the gospel. He was a man of global hopes and dreams, godly ambitions. Oh, to go to Spain and preach the gospel where no man has gone. See, this just wasn't just theoretical for him. He had plans. You understand, the apostle Paul, he had his financial support lined up. He'd even written a book that spoke of the message he was to bring to these people and a method by which he would do it. It's called the Book of Romans. And now, the Apostle Paul lay in prison. Many of his supporters and donors, oh, they've longed abandoned him. Paul, the one who would have been voted by his classmates the most likely to succeed, back in yesteryear, is now beaten beyond his years. And yet he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. If you've read the book of Philippians, it is an amazingly encouraging book. It's an expose, if you will, on joy and thanksgiving. Written by a man in prison whose life had taken a different turn. The only reason Paul could put off grumbling is because he had learned to put off, put on something far superior. It's called thanksgiving. And it had taken up residence in his heart. Paul knew to whom he owed his life and his thanks. Oh, his thanksgiving was personal. See, he realized this Thursday is our time as a holiday, as a nation, to give thanks. But here's the reality. Most people don't know to whom the thanks belongs. Or if they do, they've denied him. But we, as the people of God, know to whom we owe our thanks. We know to whom we're giving thanks. And it ought to be personal. It ought to be real. Not just this Thursday, but every single day. Oh, Thanksgiving, it animated the Apostle Paul. Fresh dreams of grace filled him and overflowed from his heart to his speech. 
Why? Because he knew that he deserved hell and was given heaven. He knew he deserved death and was given life. He knew he deserved God's wrath, but yet was given mercy. All because of Jesus. The Apostle Paul did not grumble because he knew gratitude. It wasn't theoretical. It wasn't merely doctrinal. It was personal, really personal. Oh, may it be the same for us, friends. For some of you, this message isn't complex, is it? It means stop complaining. Just stop complaining. And start proclaiming. Proclaiming God's goodness and grace. Oh, rehearse it. Recount it. Search for it. Ask for it. Look for it in scriptures. Look for grace in others. Oh, it's not hard to find. God's grace is all around us. We've already experienced it this morning. You experience it in relationships. God is at work here at Palm Vista. He's at work in your life. And there is grace to be seen. What are we looking for? Asking God through his spirit to open our eyes to what he's doing in around us. Oh, there is grace to be seen. There's grace to be had in the word of God and in others. You know, I showed up <clears throat> to community group this past Thursday. And I'll admit, I was feeling tired. <laughs> I'm just beaten. I felt in my heart, I had a lot to complain about. But you know what? I came looking. I came looking for grace. I came looking for encouragement. I, I was, you could say, unusually hungry for encouragement Thursday night. Oh, I found it. I found it in the scripture we read, in the songs we sung. But I also found it in those who were there, the Monteros, the Olsons, the Cooks. I found Jesus at work in our hearts, stirring our hearts to go and proclaim God's excellencies. In that time, I heard confessions. I heard testimonies. I heard grace as we held fast to the word of life. You know what? I left ready. I left ready to get off the plane and to serve another day. But I also left knowing it wasn't about me. It wasn't about going out there now proving myself to the world and winning the world for Christ. It's about us. Us together, shining as lights in this dark and wayward world. And it starts with one simple Command, do all things without grumbling or disputing. By God's grace, church, we can do that. Don't grumble, don't give in, stand out. It's how we go, it's how we, we roll as Christians. Let's pray if the band can come on up, that's cool. And we'll sing Jesus, thank you as a concluding song, an appropriate one at that. Let's pray. Well, Lord, your word is direct. Your word does not flatter. So, Lord, we trust that your word, even now, is having its accomplished effect, its purpose effect in our lives. But, Lord, would you take that grumbling that resides within and will you turn it to praise? Lord, where, where we have tested you, O oh God, 
may you turn that testing into trust. That we may not just put off grumbling and complaining, may we put on thanksgiving. Lord, cultivate it in our hearts. We want to see your work. We want to see your grace afresh this morning. We need to say it. This is about our survival. This is about our witness as the people of God. So even now, Lord, as we sing, fill our hearts and fill our mouths with thanksgiving, we pray. Amen.